This is the Everything EV Podcast by EV Powered. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everything EV Podcast, the podcast dedicated to everything electric. I'm your host, Charlie Atkinson, and in these episodes we'll be discussing everything to do with electric travel. So whether it be cars, bikes, boats, or even planes, we'll have it covered. We'll also be speaking to people from within the industry to get their views on the EV space, as well as other features such as electric car reviews, electric motorsport coverage, and much, much more along the way. This podcast is available on all streaming platforms, so be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from to receive every single episode as soon as it's released. And please do go back and check out all our other episodes too. Today, we're joined by Chris Pateman-Jones, the CEO of Connected Curb. On a mission to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles and sustainable mobility, Connected Curb has achieved significant growth over recent years, bringing affordable and accessible charging solutions to people all around the country. With the company having recently published its new report entitled How to Meet the UK's EV Charging Needs by 2030, we spoke with Chris Pateman jones to break down the report and to find out more about Connected Curb's ambitions. So, Chris, it's great to have you on the podcast today and thanks for joining us. Now, for anyone that hasn't read the report, what is your summary of it and how does it represent Connected Curb's mission statement? Sure. I mean, I would start off by saying we didn't commission the report with a view that it was going to be saying that Connected Curb was the only solution out there. What we tried to do was provide or develop a report which provided a a balanced sort of view as to what charging infrastructure was needed in there. So if you read the report in detail, you'll see that what it's actually saying is Connected Curb is one of the solutions that's required. It's really important that you also have ultra rapid charging on motorways and that you have rapid charging as well as the sort of ubiquitous slow fast charging that, that we do. So when I say slow fast, I do think that terminology is, I think someone needs to work on uh, the fact that calling something slow fast doesn't really work, but essentially the home or the workplace charging solutions, those are really important. And we do think that's where the majority of charging will take place. But again, not to diminish from the fact that or take away anything from the fact that the other solutions are very important. It's just the data suggests that people want to charge in the places that are most convenient to them. So that's what the report essentially says. Um, I think what we know from the market is that most investment has gone into rapids and is now going into ultra rapids and that there is a degree to say that it's falling behind in the sort of um, the on street residential and workplace setting. There needs to be a bit more work on that. I think the report is really trying to sort of show with data and with interviews from experts across the industry that it is an important area that is being missed out and that there are going to be people that are going to be left behind if we don't get this sorted. So um, the way I would phrase it really is that the ultra rapids are something that is very, very important for you when you're thinking about making a switch. But the reality of your actual day-to-day use, unless you're an extremely high mileage driver, you won't use them that frequently. They'll be used so I am. I always use the example of how often you drive to Scotland. It's not very good for me this week because I'm actually driving to Scotland on Friday. But on a normal week, I don't drive to Scotland every week. I probably drive once a year. And in those instances, ultra rapids are really important. What I actually use most frequently is slow fast on the street. Or I go to a rapid charging point if I need a faster charge. Those are the sort of things that you need to have much, much more frequently. And the problem is, is that a lot of people just don't have access to that slow, convenient charging or fast convenient charging if it's seven kilowatts or or faster. And and those people are excluded because they don't have the convenience. The whole sort of message of the report is to try and address that. And the whole focus of Connected Curb is to try and address that. So 
we started the business with a view of trying to provide convenient, affordable and reliable charging infrastructure for those who can't charge on driveways. Because as you probably know, if you have a driveway, owning an EV actually today is pretty convenient because that's where you charge 90 plus percent of the time. Yeah, just going back to when you spoke about the ultra rapid and the ultra fast chargers. And like you said, when you're thinking of switching to an electric vehicle, they're probably what you're going to focus on and the sort of headline chargers, if you like. But as you said, on a sort of day to day basis, it is those little top up chargers that you need. And, and someone actually explained it to me very well uh, quite recently. But when it comes to charging an electric car, you graze rather than gorge. And when I read the report, it just made me realise, especially where I live in Northampton, where it can be a bit of a desert for electric vehicle chargers. And there's only a few fast chargers here and there sort of dotted about all over the county. And it did make me realise just how few that of the regular sort of convenient slow fast chargers, as you call them, it did make me realise just how few of them there actually are. Well, essentially, the way the way I would think about it is, so if you own an EV today, you are highly, highly likely to have a driveway. And when you charge in a driveway, it is the most convenient and the fastest place that you can charge. So it might be a seven kilowatt, it might be three kilowatts, but it's still from a user experience, the fastest possible place you can charge. Because you get home, you plug in and you're doing something completely different. You don't think about it and the car's charged the following morning. It might take three hours, it might take six hours, it might take nine or 12 hours, but the car is charged when you get back the following morning. And therefore your user experience is really, really fast. All we're saying is that you need to have something equivalent as that in terms of convenience, reliability and affordability for those who don't have a driveway. And, and, and the solution is not telling them they have to drive a mile down the road and wait for an hour while the car charges, whether it's in a supermarket or whatever, that's not, that is not the most convenient solution. It might be a bridging solution today but really, if we want to make EV affordable for everyone in society, and I, I don't just mean affordable, I mean accessible for everyone in society, you have to deploy more charging points. And again, it's just a home charging solution for people who can't home charge. And that can be in their workplace or it can be on their residential street. But you have to sort of recognize that convenience is incredibly important to people, probably more important than cash, actually. It's incredibly important. And so you need to provide something that is convenient. And again, when people sort of say, and I'm not having a go at the ultra rapids, because I think they are incredibly important. And I genuinely mean that they're incredibly important if we want the EV transition to really happen. But when you look at the price point of it as well, accessibility around cost is equally very, very important. And the idea that I have to go and use one of the rapid or ultra rapids, instead of being able to charge the equivalent on my driveway, so on my driveway, I can charge at its lowest 5p per kilowatt, maybe not at the moment with the energy crisis, but maybe 14 or 15p versus a public charging rapid solution of 50p up to 80p per kilowatt. It's just not comparable. Whereas if you look at the projects that we're doing with Agile Streets, the Bayes sort of funded project, so uh, it's Bayes and Samsung Engineering and Octopus and a few of the universities, um, that project, we're actually able to reduce the cost of charging. So I think on that project we have uh, we've got a boosted tariff and then we have an eco tariff and the eco tariff is 18 or 19p so in a in the context of the energy crisis by having smart charging in the same way that you would have at home we're trying to reduce the cost of public charging for people who can't home charge because otherwise you're you're not only excluding based on convenience but you're also then charging a premium for that lack of convenience and that really isn't fair if we're serious about making ev open to everyone in society and that is without us even getting into the political debate of the fact that wealthy people generally have driveways, whereas poorer people 
predominantly don't. Poorer people live in areas of worse air quality, wealthier people generally, and again, a big genera generalities, but don't. So this is a really big issue, affordability and accessibility. Yeah, it's probably the one big question mark or the biggest barrier to EV ownership, which I encounter probably on a day-to-day -day basis now. And it's when I talk to people who might be a little bit sceptical of EVs and, and they always go and use that example of, oh, what do I do if I live in a block of flats and I don't have my own driveway? Where do I charge my car and, and, and what do I do? And it, it seems to me like that's always been held against the industry. And I get the impression from reading the report that it's sort of tackling the fact that those people in those blocks of flats have seemingly been left behind for too long. Is that a fair assessment? Is that something you'd agree with? I do. And and I think too often it's sort of, again, the generalities come out of, well, if you live in those sort of locations, you you might not have the money to be able to buy an EV. And it's simply not. I mean, I live in a, in a block of flats um, <coughs> and I actually have an EV. I don't have a driveway and I have to therefore deal with the inconvenience of it. And there is a real risk of the fact that today, yes, people have been left behind. Um, I think that is largely, it's sort of okay. It's an early adopter environment. But when you start to look at mass scale adoption of EV, it's simply not acceptable to leave behind that portion of society. And when we talk about that portion, it's normally understated in terms of the, the, the numbers. As the report sort of says, we using the um, UK housing or the, sorry, the English housing survey estimate that it's about 62% of the population who don't have the ability to put a charging point on, on their drive. So that's 34% who don't have a driveway and then a further 28% who have somewhere to park their car, but it's not a, it's a dedicated space essentially rather than a driveway with an electrical connection to it. So that is a significant portion of society that are that don't have that convenience of driveway sort of charging. And if we don't tackle that, it's um, it's going to become a societal problem. Um, and then obviously, I, I think we can only hope that it becomes a political problem as quickly as possible, because then it will be addressed. Um, but yes, it's something that worries me. I, I'm, an, I'm an environmentalist, so I, I want things to move as quickly as possible. And the only way you can get this to work is by, by, by making it accessible for everyone. Just to touch on what you said there about how it's time to tackle those issues. I was just wondering, in terms of the work Connected Curb has done, what sort of significant milestones the company has achieved in trying to break down those barriers? Yeah, sure. So we started in 2017, and I think it would be fair to say that whilst we think it was a good time to start the business, there wasn't a huge amount of focus on on-street residential or even workplace charging at that point. <coughs> Excuse me. It was still largely investment into um, uh, small numbers of rapid charging points and then starting to see motorway service stations, those sort of locations. Over the time that we've sort of had the business, the first sort of two years was very, very slow. We've had a few pilot projects. And then gradually, the work that we were doing with councils to talk about these sort of things that we're talking about today and people being left behind and certain areas of the community being left behind, councils have started to take this on board. At the same time as the government and other bodies, it's not just us, other bodies sort of talking about this, we've started to see things really pick up. So in the last year, we've deployed, I think, in fact, actually, in about the last nine months, we've deployed about a 1,000 charging points. <clears throat> um, and we've contracted now, I think it's actually getting close to about 12,000 charging points for deployment over the next few years. So we are deploying huge numbers in the context of about 20-odd thousand public charging points in the UK to date. Those numbers are quite large. What's, I suppose, the interesting thing about that is that is 
that is concentrated in certain areas. So if we take West Sussex, for example, we have an agreement with the council then, and this is quite interesting because it also tackles one of the other areas of inequality, which is rural charging. So in West Sussex, we're deploying across the whole county, and that will be as many as 7,000 charging points over the next five to six years. Um, and then in Kent, we have a large project of 600 to 1,000 charging points being deployed again across the whole county. And then we have more concentrated areas like Cambridge, for example, where we have a large project to deploy across the city, uh, and the same in Coventry, the same in Barking Dagenham, uh, and elsewhere. So we've got an awful lot to do, and the, the business is growing incredibly fast. And I think we're all motivated by the fact that those charging points are going to go in. And where they go in, you see the adoption increasing, and you see, again, people who previously to us being there wouldn't have considered buying an EV because they didn't have a drive. And then now when we go in and deploy, and we deploy on their street, and we deploy uh, four to six charging points on those streets, um, in clusters so that maybe on the street next door you can come and use that one and so on so we use sort of the parking zones to be able to deploy them um, we're actually giving people the opportunity to go and deploy we're seeing pretty good utilization across the network I think um, again coming back to our core focus as a business we try and deliver on again providing a, a, um, a comparable service to our home charger so we try and deliver on reliability affordability and convenience and where we do that, we seem to see very good feedback from clients. And so those 12,000 charging points will hopefully deliver that um, to everyone in the places where we deploy. And the numbers are going up all the time. So we expect to deploy about 4,000 charging points in the public setting this year. Um, and we expect to contract another 20 or 30,000 um, public charging points this year because the market is growing so fast. I think what's quite nice because of the focus of what we do on those three things, the reliability, affordability and convenience, combined with the fact that we make everything out of recycled materials or we use recycled materials rather in the design of the system, combined with the fact that we manufacture here in the UK means that we're being very successful in the tenders. Um, and then to add into that, it's also the, the analytics that we use to select the sites and plan for deployment. Um, means that we're trying to tackle again some of this social inequality that exists and again that's very appealing to our public sector clients who ultimately are trying to serve their residents as best they can and therefore having a partner like us i think that is motivated both environmentally and socially um, plays pretty well when you mentioned the public sector clients there one section of the report that i did find really interesting was the plan and the idea to electrify the nhs so could you just talk to us about that in a bit of detail and the sort of thought process behind that idea? Yeah, it was it was simply we were trying to when you see a lot of these reports, they come out with there's all these sort of pontificating about what you theory really more than anything else. And so we thought, well, let's try and put this practically as to how you might do this and also how you might um, speaking of the NHS in particular, how you might try and give central government a bit more responsibility as well, because. At the moment, I think it would be fair to say that central government has set targets and they've provided funding, but they haven't really done a huge amount in terms of actual tangible work. What they've done is passed on the responsibility of doing the deployment to the local authorities. And that's fair enough, but it's also very difficult for many of the local authorities because they don't have the resource. They have had an awful lot of other different things to deal with over the last couple of years with the pandemic. So what we basically thought was, well, what is the biggest employer in the UK? In fact, one of the biggest employers in the world, it's the NHS. The government has direct influence over those estates. And the government also has a very attractive um, salary sacrifice and, and sort of 
uh, vehicle scheme for NHS workers. <coughs> so those three things combined offer a massive opportunity to see um, a governmental body taking a real lead in deploying charging. It is a workforce which spans all of the um, sort of parts of society from a socioeconomic perspective. It's also an equal opportunities employer. It does a lot of things, which means it would be a really good example to see this being deployed one where other bodies would then look at it and go, well, if it's good enough for the NHS, which is a body that we really respect, let's go for this. Um, and it would also, I think with a million employees, there's a lot of vehicles involved in that. And there's a real opportunity to see a quick transition and also a body that would benefit massively from improvements in air quality. I mean, the body that's going to benefit most from seeing improvements in air quality is probably going to be the NHS. The, the, we all know the statistics and the number of people that die early because of air quality issues, the impact it has on everyone's health if they live in urban areas. So the NHS would not only have an opportunity to incentivize its workforce, but also benefit the communities. And then I suppose the final point, without wanting to get too political, um, is we saw the, um, the negative publicity that the government had last year, or was it even the year before, where they were offering uh, relatively small increases in salary to NHS workers. When you actually look at that salary increase for a average nurse, the savings that they would make each year from driving an EV would be um, more than that increase in terms of um, a salary increase. So we thought it would actually be quite a positive story of not only giving a benefit to the employee in terms of the cost savings of operationally running an EV through a pretty attractive um, salary um, uh, car scheme, <coughs> but also there would be potential for them actually for the NHS to not necessarily be running the charging as a profit-making engine. It could be something which simply passes the cost of, 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 um, uh, of the power onto the user rather than trying to make it as a profit maker. So th there's lots of ways that you could do it, which would be highly attractive for the community, the user and, and for the country, I think. Now, I know you said you didn't want to get too political, but I'm just going to go back on that a little bit, because in the report, you did make a number of recommendations to government, which you've already talked about in a, a little bit of detail from recognising the need for more funding to a long term national EV plan and a sort of educational piece to explain the benefits of owning an electric vehicle. And now I won't ask you to go in detail on, on all of those, but out of all of those recommendations, which ones do you feel are sort of the most urgent and the most pressing? Um, so I think the government's doing quite a lot actually at the moment that is really, really good. Um, I suppose the part I'd focus on today would be education and it's not, it's education in two areas. I'd love to see more, and I, I think Ozel is about to do some very exciting stuff in this, is educating the councils that have responsibility for deployment. We see quite a few tenders coming out that don't recognise um, the economics of EV charging, particularly in this um, sort of ubiquitous fast charging space in, resident, in residential areas. It's very, very different to ultra rapid and rapid charging. And you need to have, a, there needs to be a bit more thinking in some of the tenders in terms of the durations of the contract that are coming out. And I think central government can help a lot with that, possibly in trying to communicate where risk sits and to help councils on that. As I say, OZEV is doing some really good stuff at the moment on that in providing guidelines on procurement. We've certainly done it as well. Um, and so I think a number of different parties working together on that is a good thing. Obviously it's then incumbent on suppliers 
to make sure their kit lasts a long time. Hence the reason we designed the connected curb system to be a long life asset. So 15 to 25 year lifespan, because you should be thinking of this as infrastructure. I think a lot of the procurement processes we see at the moment are basically procuring product. And this shouldn't be, it should be infrastructure. If you want reliability, affordability, convenience, that's infrastructure. Infrastructure provides that. It's not a, a appliance that dies after a few years. It's something that should last and be extremely reliable in, in, the, in, in the street. Uh, so that's education on one side. I think there's equally, I'd love to see the government doing something. Do you remember the sort of 1980s, 90s buckle up campaign um, around everyone sort of get in the car and put your seatbelt on? Now it's just something that is sort of, it, we'd all do it. We don't even think about it. And I think there's something similar that needs to happen in terms of educating people about EV. There is, and I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but there are so many um, bits of misleading information out there about EV in the market that I would argue of being, I don't know whether it's disinformation intentionally or not, but there is so much and there is so much information that people are confused about what's going on. If you read the press on a daily basis, it's slightly schizophrenic. One day you see something that is incredibly positive about EV, the next day it's something incredibly bad. Uh, there's very little nuance in the, in, the, in the debate. So I'd love to see the government stepping in a little bit more and really someone taking leadership and saying why this is really important. I've been really encouraged to see the debate, I think, beginning to change a little bit around net zero more generally. <coughs> and I actually think what's happening at the moment with the Ukraine crisis and energy prices more generally is, whilst terrible, um, possibly positive for the EV industry and net zero more broadly. So I remember at COP26, we were fortunate enough to be there, and at COP26, the whole debate was, how do you make net zero affordable? Because it's so expensive. And now the debate seems to be, how do you deliver net zero more quickly, i.e. things like EV and other things, to deliver energy more affordably? Because the market, it's completely changed. The dynamic has changed. Net zero is the route to affordability now, rather than it being a barrier to affordability. And I think someone in government standing up and really explaining that um, and and moving that conversation forward would be really useful. Yeah, and I completely agree with you on that. And now you touched on Connected Curbs plans for the rest of the year. And I just wanted to go back on that slightly because off the back of this report, what does the short term future look like for the company, but also the long term vision as well? Well, so, I mean, I've said it, I think, a few times in, in the course. So apologies for being boring and harking back to it. But Everything in the business is about trying to provide convenience, affordability, and reliability for that user group who can't charge at home. Now, admittedly, some of our clients, actually some of the big developers are engaging us to provide home charging as well, but our core market is in that sort of public on-street and workplace setting. So everything that we do is about that. So our innovation and the work that we're doing is about continuing to try and make our charging points more visually discreet and more reliable. Um, we're already at 98, 99% uptime. Um, we're actually disappointed by that as a business. We want to be at the five nines. This is infrastructure. So you'll continue to see that rise over time. It's actually slightly lower because of some of the innovation projects we have. If we, if we take those out of our network, then it's well over the 99% level. Um, <clears throat> I think to the point of some of the innovation, the innovation we have is not only around the reliability, but it's also really trying to drive the affordability and the accessibility. So we're doing some really interesting work with Motability and, and some of their partners, um, which will be announced in the coming weeks on 
the accessibility of our network and us making some public commitments on how many accessible bays we will have within that 10 to 12,000 that we've now contracted and going forward. It's something that is really important to us. We started the business with the idea of accessibility was actually around affordability and economic accessibility. And we very quickly realized that actually it was about a lot more than that and disabled access and vulnerability is something we should think about. So we've done redesigns of our bays um, to basically try and make sure that accessibility is included within that. So going forward, you'll see some things on that. And then from an affordability perspective, you'll have seen the Agile Streets project, um, which is coming towards an end now. Um, that was an innovation project where we're basically bringing smart charging um, beyond just load management, but actually being able to schedule charging activities to reduce the cost of charging. Um, for people parking on street, the sort of things that you can do if you are on, a, on your driveway at the moment, but where you can't really do it in public settings. So in public settings, when you plug in, it starts charging as quickly as it can already. You might be plugged in from 7, 8, 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. and your car probably is charged after the first couple of hours and you've charged during peak hours. The Agile Streets project essentially is aiming to take advantage of variations in power supply uh, over the course of day, depending on consumption and availability within the grid and it means that we can save the consumer up to about 40 percent in the cost of charging which is huge um, but what's actually more important from an environmental perspective because uh, the affordability is really important but from the environmental perspective is it also means that we're able to reduce the pressure on the grid and actually in future potentially start to take more renewables into the grid so that's the future for Connected Curve is all around power management. How do you optimize the network? Because we have incredible charging points that are have more intelligence than they need for what we do at the moment. And that gives us the opportunity in future to be forecasting load that's coming onto our system because we really know our customers well. They are unlike um, rapid and ultra rapid um, charging. They are habitual, they're regular, they come back two or three times per week. It's essentially a home charger on the street. So we can forecast use. We know what load is coming towards the system. And importantly, we can then respond to that. So if the grid tells us, <coughs> excuse me, we're constrained, we can respond to that and modulate our charging experience without impacting the user experience. Because again, if you're plugged in overnight, you're there for 12 hours. We don't need 12 hours to charge your car. So we can respond to the grid. So that's really where we're going. I don't want to go into too much more detail because I'll, I'll give away the trade secrets, but that's the, you can tell that it's all about sophistication of network. We, we think this is, this is moving in a utility direction and you therefore expect utility levels of performance in reliability and, 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 and affordability. And that's, that's sort of our focus. That's all for this episode. Many thanks for listening. And if you liked it, then please do check out all our other episodes and be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from to make sure you get every single episode as soon as it's released. For daily news coverage, features and much more, you can also head over to evpowered.co.uk. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you on the very next episode of the Everything EV podcast.